0: afternoon everybody and welcome to Other Minds and Hands, an open and friendly discussion of Tolkien Adaptation. This is our first session and the very first thing I have to say, unfortunately, is, um, I apologies. um, Maggie Park, Dr. Maggie Park is going to be my co-host on this show and I am so grateful to have her, uh, join me. She knows, she, uh, has studied far more than i have about uh adaptation and the relationship between films and fan bases and things this is her primary academic specialty uh, and she's awesome However, she couldn't be here today. Uh, she couldn't be here today because uh, she, <laughs> the house she's in, she's uh, 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 up in uh, Scotland this week, and the house that she's staying in got struck by lightning. So, just like Bilbo, Chapter One of The Hobbit, struck by lightning, struck by lightning. That's just what happened. Um, so they have like no power, no internet. So she unfortunately was not able to join us today, but she will. She will be here. She will be here. Um, Thanks to everybody who is joining us today. I am delighted uh, to be able to see everybody and to be able to talk to folks. It is very necessary. (laughs) It is very necessary to be able to have a place where we can talk about adaptation in a, a calm and rational manner. Uh, and i feel like this is one of the problems that i think a lot of people have been having a lot of people of course have been commenting on how explosive a lot of the comments and i honestly they've been explosive in both directions right i mean when you look at the way that people have responded for instance to the trailer for the new amazon show um it's you know it's tended to be largely like what you see anyway is either uh is either gush or loathing right and um when that happens i think that you know one of the one of the um, one of the things that you know we're tending to see here is that there's there's not the opportunity for discussion, right? For like calm analysis and really thinking through, you know, what's going on there and what these issues are. Um, and when you only have you know a short number, this is why Twitter, you know, has deservedly the reputation that it often has. When you only have a very limited number of characters to use. On a Twitter post, in uh, an internet comment, uh, you know, like a, a you know, a, a, a you know, a, in a comment section for an article or whatever, um, that's just that is not a a place for rounded and thoughtful discourse. It's just generally not. Um, so let's have here uh, a calm and open discussion. When I say open, I do mean that I'm open. To anybody who sincerely would like to talk about this, I totally understand people who are um, really uh, uh, somewhere between dreading the Amazon production, people who loathe what they see so far in the Amazon production. I get it. I can understand that. Um, and I think that there's a lot that we can talk about there. Um and I'm actually not without hope of maybe encouraging you a little bit, uh, because from what I have seen, from what I have read, and I've recently read quite a bit of things that uh, f- from people who uh, strongly dislike the Amazon uh, production and what they see in the trailer. Um, but what I see in the comments of the people who are talking about that um, are things that I, I think it's important to, t- to discuss. There's, there's some important issues here, and it's important But again, our trend, right, our trend in um, internet discourse in the 21st century is not just to polarize. People talk about that a lot, and that's certainly true, but but, but it's more than that. It's to be dismissive because nobody takes the time to sit down and actually listen to people and find out what's kind of going on there. Anyway, so what I was saying is um, that I do think... A big part of the problem is that there's just there's not really in the normal ways in which we tend to communicate with each other, which, of course, often very commonly, um, uh, very commonly, it tends to be in these quick bursts you know, quick one-sentence comments back and forth, that is not a good opportunity for finding out what other people are really thinking, for getting any kind of nuanced understanding of other people and what their concerns are. Um, And so we tend to be dismissive. That is, that is, and that entire culture has really grown and become, you know, people talk about toxicity, right? Like, oh, the fandom is becoming toxic. Um, That's just the natural way in which you know,, uh, in which things are going to express themselves when you only have like a sentence in which to express yourselves. that's that is the internet discourse in which we are in the middle of, and I want to move away from that. I want to move away from that completely. here, uh, I want our discussions to be marked by respect and patience and thoughtfulness, thoughtfulness towards each other. So I do have to say um that. You know, for those of you who are with us live um, and are able to uh, write in the comments, and there's a lot of comments, so I won't always be able to, uh, uh, I'm not going to be able to get everybody's comments. I'm going to be working with and trying to interact with everybody's comments uh, as we go along, but... I'm not going to be able to acknowledge every single comment because they're just they're just way too many for that. Nor, of course, obviously, can I open mics for everybody or something like that, um, because there's a whole lot of people here uh, and it just obviously would not work at all. Um, But um, but it also does mean that, like we, we, you know, I I welcome everybody and, you know, any whatever your views are, whatever your concerns are. I hope that we can address those. And I really I really want to do that. Um, But of course, we can't have people shouting and insulting folks in our chat. Like, that's not okay. So, I am going to have to ask you, friendly, the friendliness part uh, is is part and parcel with the open discussion. Um, and I'm, I'm afraid we're going to have to insist on the friendly part uh, of the discussion. Be friendly or else. <laughs> Be friendly or we're going to kick you to the street. Um, again, it's not exactly not exactly like that. Alright. So, let us let us move forward. Let's start some discussion here now. Today, I have to say, um, I'm probably going to talk a lot today. I'm 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 going to try be trying really hard uh, to leave as much time as we can um, uh, to leave as much time as we can for uh, open questions and discussions and stuff. But this is designed to this is a long term endeavor, right? This is not just a one shot broadcast that I'm doing today. Um, I'm ready to do this every week that I'm home, uh, you know, moving forward, you know, for the next few years. So um, there'll be time. We're not going to get to every issue. We're not going to get to every question today, Um, but we're going to try to work through stuff. We're, uh, we hope, Maggie and I hope to do a whole bunch of different things uh, during the course of this broadcast to address particular issues, uh, to be doing some analysis of the, uh, you know, the materials that Amazon is releasing to, you know, do some, practical let's look practically at the um uh at the uh the stuff that's happening right at the at the 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 adaptation that's going on we also want to have some guests in uh to talk about things because it would be really fun to hear from other people uh as well so so i wanted to start by talking about the passage of oh, purpose of this broadcast, which I've already done, but talking about the passage from which the title of this uh, uh, this show is being taken. Uh, and it's from a very, very famous paragraph in probably Tolkien's most famous letter. Um, and that is. Letter 131, his letter to Milton Waldman. Um, I'll come back to the context in a minute. Let's read this famous paragraph. Do not laugh, he says. But once upon a time, my crest has long since fallen, I had a mind to make a body of more or less connected legend, ranging from the large and cosmogonic to the level of romantic fairy story, the larger founded on the lesser in contact with the earth, the lesser drawing splendor from the vast backcloths which I could dedicate simply to… to England, to my country. It should possess the tone and quality that I desired, somewhat cool and clear, be redolent of our air the clime and soil of the northwest, meaning Britain and the hither parts of Europe, not Italy or the Aegean, still less the east, and while possessing, if I could achieve it, the fair elusive beauty that some call Celtic, though it is rarely found in genuine ancient Celtic things, it should be high, purged of the gross, and fit for the more adult mind of a land long now steeped in poetry. I would draw some of the great tales in fullness, and leave many only placed in the scheme and sketched the cycles should be linked to a majestic whole and yet leave scope for other minds and hands wielding paint and music and drama. Absurd. Okay, uh, so the, um, what's he talking about here? What's, what's, what's happening here in this paragraph? This is his vision for what his works would be, what his works should be, right? Um, And that is a... um, It's a pretty remarkable thing, right? Notice how he frames this paragraph, right? He starts it with, do not laugh. That is, he acknowledges there's this awareness on Tolkien's part that this vision that he has is extremely grandiose, right? He thinks it extremely grandiose, such that he feels sheepish in bringing it up uh, lest he be laughed at for it, right? Um, what is that vision? To make a body of more or less connected legend, he wants to make this entire body of legend, ranging from the large and cosmogonic, right? So like all the way to like to the like, to creation stories, right? He wants to build not just to build a world. People often talk about talking. And his world building, which, of course, perfectly valid, right? Um, but it wasn't just building a world in the way that a, uh, you know, many other writers have built the world or just kind of like, like I'm going to invent a, a a world in order to be the setting of this story that I want to tell, right? His, he wants his stories to be the story of the world from its beginning, right? He wants to do all the way back to the origin stories, Um all the way back to the origin stories of his worlds, and um, what um, and notice the two different levels that he talks about: the large and cosmogonic to the level of romantic fairy story. Now, of course, romantic doesn't mean love stories. That's not at all what he's talking about here. He's using the word romantic in its literary sense. That is romances, which just means sort of stories closer to the ground. The difference between the large and cosmogonic, if you've read the Silmarillion you can see both of these very plainly illustrated. Large and cosmogonic that's the Aino Indole, right? That's these this big picture legend stuff. Even the early chapters uh, of the Quintus Silmarillion are large and cosmogonic, right? Whereas the story of Turin Turambar and the story of Beren and Luthien are both romantic fairy story. Uh, uh, are both that's that's The level of romantic fairy story, right? Of course, the Lord of the Rings is also the level of romantic fairy. It's a romance. Um, Tolkien, I don't think ever in his whole life called the Lord of the Rings a novel. A novel is a specific genre of prose literature. Um, And he wasn't writing novel. He was writing a romance. It's not quite the same. Uh, and, uh, but the the differences we don't have to bother with the differences right now, but I'm just saying that's what he means when he's talking about romantic fairy story at that point. Fairy story because it's a fantasy, right? Because there are elves in it, uh, and magic in it. So it is not, uh, a modern realistic narrative in the way that, um, uh, that he, that we see, you know, in other places. Um, okay. Anyway, um yeah great okay <laughs> uh sorry, yeah I apologize uh again for the technical difficulties. I'm trying to ignore it, but i I know it's hard for you guys um all I can say is i'm I believe that the uh recording will be better. Uh, so I'm sorry. I hope that you're able to follow. Um, if you're able to follow what I'm saying well enough, fortunately, this is not exactly a, uh, a quick-action video that's going on here. If I, in the lower left-hand corner of the screen, am all like very stop-motion-esque, then you're not going to lose too much, I hope, as long as you can still hear me. Anyway, um, so these are the, 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 the legends that he wants to do, this whole big... More or less connected legend, right? This whole big story, small stories set within the larger stories, right? Um, and he wants to dedicate it to England, he says, to his country. Um, he, he says it should possess the tone and quality that I desire. And I connect this with what he also says later when he says it should be high, purged of the gross, And fit for the more adult mind of a land long now steeped in poetry. Um, There's a lot to unpack there as far as what exactly does he mean by that? What does he mean by high? Which he puts in quotation marks, notice. What exactly does he mean by high? Um, Purged of the gross. Exactly what does that mean? Um, He's comparing it, I believe, to other legends and traditions. Right. He's talking about um, uh, he's talking about the um, uh, other notice his explicit reference to other traditions, Celtic traditions. Um, He says this is not going to be of the East, so this is not going to be the kind of these these are not going to be the kinds of legends that they tell in China or India. Um, he's read some of those stories. it's not going to be like it's not going to work like those stories. nor Italy nor or the Aegean. Why is he talking about Italy and the Aegean specifically? Greece and Rome, right? That is the classical world. Don't expect classical legend either. This is not going to be like Eastern legend in style, in approach, in kind of story. It's not going to be like Eastern legend and it's not going to be like classical legend either. It is most going to be like the northwest, Britain, and the hither parts of Europe. That is more of the Germanic and Norse, with some Celtic stuff in there too. But as he says, purged of the gross. Um. Anyway, so um. Uh, yeah. So that. So he, he's again. He's talking about the. Like the the, sort of the style and his interest as well, right? It'll fit better with those other kinds of myth. He's not trying to do classical myth. And this is a big deal, mind. Uh, There's a reason why he specifies that, not Italy or the Aegean. And the reason that he specifies it is that at the time. You know, at that time, 100 years ago, uh, when, okay, not quite 100 years ago, it's only 75 years ago, when Tolkien was writing this letter, um, it was still true that every educated English person um, was raised on Latin and Greek. Like, that's what they knew. Tolkien, in his own high school, had to do extemporaneous Greek oratory. Right. I mean, like that. This is what they did. This is what educated people did at that point. And so the absolute assumption, if you were to say to any educated English person of the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, right, say to them, I'm going to tell legends. They're going to immediately think about Greek and Roman legends because that's what they know. That's what they were taught. Right. That's what they grew up on. And um, uh And so he's specifying, this ain't that, right? That's not what I'm doing. That's not what I'm doing. I'm doing other things. Um, And not just Germanic. Of course, one of the primary influences on Tolkien, one of the things that he loved most of all, was Finnish, the Kalevala, right? Um, Which is different from the Germanic, not at all the same. Um, And he delighted in the difference, uh, the differences between the Finnish stuff and the Germanic stuff. Um... But um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway. Yeah. So he's in talking to the educated world, um, the educated world of, the, again, British and American. Yeah. Like all around like this. The, everybody, every, you know, every all like Americans and Europeans were still being raised with the, with that kind of classical focused education, which is great. I approve of that. But um, but Tolkien is specifying When I talk, when I say legends, that's what you're going to be thinking of, and it's not going to be that. It's not going to be that. Um, Notice where he ends. I would draw some great tales in fullness and leave many only placed in the scheme and sketched. And, of course, we see he did exactly that, right? And, of course, very conspicuously for local news, right, um, some of the most clear and obviously relevant examples of... uh, stories, tales that he only placed in the scheme and sketched would be the entire second age of Middle-earth. He never did anything but sketch the second age of Middle-earth. And if you collect together everything that he wrote about the Second Age of Middle-earth, you couldn't even make a good book out of it, like a thick book out of it. Um, There is not much, even if you're including multiple drafts of the stuff that he did write. Maybe if you included all the drafts, you could come up with a modest book about Second Age stuff directly. Um, uh, I wouldn't count Motion Club papers. It's kind of cheating. It's related, but it's not exactly a narrative of the Second Age, now, is it? Um, But anyway... Uh, placed in the scheme and sketched. And then the cycles should be linked to a majestic whole, back to where he started, right, with that uh, more or less connected legend, the body of more or less connected legend, linked to a majestic whole, and yet leave scope for other minds and hands wielding paint and music and drama. Um, and then he ends with absurd. Remember he started with do not laugh and he ends with absurd he ends up slighting this vision that he gave, right? He sets it up saying, do not laugh at the beginning. And then he ends with saying, absurd. This is way too grandiose. Now, why is he talking about other minds and hands wielding paint and music and drama? What, what is he envisioning there? How is that meant to work? Um, and the answer, I think, I think that what he has in mind here, and the reason why he immediately goes to absurd at the end, is Tolkien is very intimately familiar with cycles of this kind, with, with things of this kind, right? Cycles of this kind, cycles should be linked to a majestic whole, yet leave scope for their minds and hands. Things like the Poetic Edda, for instance, um, the Arthurian tradition, for instance, there are many stories, stories that he loved, stories that he spent his life studying which had lots of scope for other minds and hands and have centuries worth of traditions, people who have read those stories, loved those stories, been inspired by those stories and entered into those stories and contributed to those stories, right whether it be the Eddic tradition from the poetic Edda to the prose Edda, whether it be the Arthurian tradition, right from It's hard to say exactly when. We have some early texts, but are we sure that those are the first ones ever? I don't think we are. Um, Anyway, you know, so from the origins of the Arthur story through retellings and retellings, um, this is the great stories, right? You know, uh, Sam asks, you know, don't great stories ever end? Um, uh, No, no, they don't. The great stories, the stories that are taken up, the stories that move people most, move whole cultures, inform whole cultures, um, those stories don't ever end. And you can tell their great stories because other minds and hands will inevitably take them up. Right. We'll work within them. Um, We'll retell them um, and make them their own in various ways. That's what we see. That's what Aeneid did. That's what the Aeneid did, right? That's what Virgil did to Homer. Uh, that's what we see in the Arthurian story, right? That's what the, the, the Brits did to, uh, to, to Arthur and the French did back and all these other things, right? Um, you know, we see all this stuff going on. Uh, and um, that's how, again, that's how the great tales work. That's how you can tell that they're great tales. And I believe that that's why he says, absurd, absurd, right? I'm not going to even, I'm not gonna really assume that um, I'm not gonna really assume that this is gonna happen, that I have a realistic shot of, you know, that my stories, that my legends are going to become that kind of story. But it did, right? There's a, a deep and underlying historical irony in this paragraph, when we read it now, right, when we read it now in 2022, what we have seen is that not only did Tolkien achieve what he asked Milton Waldman not to laugh at him for saying, and which he called absurd, not only has he achieved that, he's achieved far more than that, far more than that. Um, he set out originally at the very beginning to write a mythology for England because he felt... Sad that England didn't have much native mythology. It was all borrowed stuff, all French stuff and Celtic stuff and and nothing uh, English about it. Actually English. Um, And um, so he wanted to write a new English mythology. And that's where he started. But that's not where he ended up. And we can already see him shifting in this paragraph here. Beyond merely, um, he's going to dedicate it to England. It's still connected to England in his mind very much, but it's no longer the mythology of England itself, an origin story of English fairy stories. That's what he was setting out to when he was talking about. That's what he was talking about. That's what the Book of Lost Tales was. The very first thing he started writing when he was in in the nineteen the teens was a set of stories designed to say, like, why do we have these, these, these English. Fairy stories, elf stories. Why do we have them? Where did they come from? I'm going to write the origin story, and that's what the Book of Lost Tales is. How, what is the truth behind the stories of elves in, uh, uh, in England uh, that survive into modern England? And, uh, and, and, and how did we come to know about them, right? That's the, the origin story question that his old Book of Lost Tales was designed to do. In a lot of ways, that's, that idea never goes away, but it changes and it grows over time. And at the end of the day, what do we see, right? When Tolkien, years later, right, when 50, 55, 60 years after he set out to do that in the Book of Lost Tales, what we see, um, and what we see, I think, even more clearly now, 50 years after that, right, after his death, um, is that Tolkien did not write a mythology for England. Tolkien wrote a mythology for the modern world. Tolkien has established not just a genre. I mean, that's true. The modern fantasy genre uh, is, uh, it's not that. I mean, I will sometimes say things like, uh, you know, the modern fantasy gen- genre is like all comes from Tolkien. And I will usually immediately get people being like, but there was lots of other fantasy before Tolkien. Of course there was. Of course, there was, but that's not the point. The point is, uh, it wouldn't matter if those had been, if it hadn't been for Tolkien. Um, the only reason that fantasy has become what it is and means what it means and functions as it does within modern society is because of Tolkien. Um, you know, all of those other fantasy writers deserve all of their props, but they wouldn't have done it. It wouldn't have. Uh, it wouldn't have mattered at the end of the day. Um, but um, okay. So, but as I say, Tolkien has created like an entirely new vocabulary um, for people to use. Um, we'll talk, I think we'll, we'll do some episodes, because I think this is really important. Um, we'll probably do some episodes in which we talk about uh, Tolkien's on fairy stories essay. Um, because I think that it's really important to understand kind of Tolkien's theory behind this and why he felt that fantasy was important and what's going on. Because again, I think there we can already see the ways in which he's sort of generalizing. Um, And again, at the end of the day, he has, he has achieved more and reached far more people um, than he ever imagined. And we can see changes over the course of his own thinking over the course of his life, which is really interesting uh, to see him responding to that. Um, But, Always, he imagined, part of the deal. He knows. Nobody knows better than him, for reasons I'm going to talk about in just a second. Nobody knows better than he. That part of writing a great story of this kind, one of these great cycles, one of these great tales, um, is that other minds and hands are going to take it up. That's how you know you've succeeded. That's what it means to be telling a great tale and let me explain what I mean when I say nobody knew that better than Tolkien um, an important question that we need to answer and here I want to I want to I'm start I'm gonna start to kind of segue into some things more explicitly relevant to the adaptation questions and concerns that folks have and again I apologize I'm not like gonna be doing direct questions yet uh, I'm gonna get there um, but I there's a real important reason why I want to do this, and that's because 100 percent, like absolutely 100 percent of the things that have been shouted at me <laughs> on Twitter over the last five days um, have been have shown me like we need to take three or four steps back Um the questions that people are answering are, are asking cannot be answered in the form in which they're asking them. We have to see the bigger picture first, in order to understand even what we're talking about. Or else, this is another reason why those shouting matches happen, where one person is upset and then the other person calls them a troll, and then now everybody's upset, right? Um, and uh, like, so okay, like in order to get out of that we have to understand like what we're talking about, right? We have to have like, we have to understand some common ground here. Um, So what's an adaptation? What are we even talking about here? What is the project? Now, this is where I was really looking forward uh, to Maggie Park's help and she'll help in future uh, episodes. We'll come back to this for sure uh, when Maggie is back. So I'm just gonna say one really simple thing about what an adaptation is. And picking up on what I was just saying before about how much, how well Tolkien knew about that other minds and hands thing, Um, and that is an adaptation is a creative engagement with a text that you love or are interested in. You can engage with a text in lots of ways. Every act of reading is an engagement with a text. There's there's the text and there's you. You never are understanding the text objectively, ever, ever. That just, it can't happen. It's not actually possible at all. When you are reading a text, and you will yourself see this all the time, right? You'll see this all the time the more you read a text, right? The longer you read a text. Um, Those of you who have been reading Tolkien for like 30 years will know will have had the same experience that I've had, right? Where you go back and you reread it and you go back and reread it. And every time you reread it, you're like, holy cow, was that always there, right? The, the, the enti- like you see new things, you understand new things. You, it's, it's remarkable, right? There's never a question of like the text just exists and you have this objective and holistic view of the text. You don't, nobody does, right? You're always engaging with the text as a reader. But, of course, you can engage with it in other ways, too. One way to engage with it is to do some analysis, right? To do some what is generally called criticism, but I loathe that word. Um, Criticism from its beginning, uh, the concept of a literary critic. It's an 18th century concept, um, and it was explicitly just about gatekeeping. Right. A, a, a literary critic's job was to read works of literature and tell the public, is this good or bad? Should you read this or should you not bother with it? That was there were gatekeepers. That was their job. And I loathe that whole business. Like, I am not in the business of telling you what is good and bad. Um, you can read things for yourself. Let's talk about it by all means. Right. So I hate the idea of criticism, um, um, but there's no I, I've been looking for decades now for another noun. That I can use, like analyst, is kind of fun because analyze is what I do. Um, But analyst means so many other things, Uh, and it sounds like I'm probably psychoanalyzing or something, and that's not at all what I mean. Um, But um, I'd like discusser. That's just not a good noun at all. Anyway, I don't know. I don't have a noun for what I do. Um, But I hate criticism. Anyway. But you can engage with it that way, right? You can do some in-depth analysis and look at it and 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 dive deep, right, into some. That's 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 a great form of engagement um, with a work. You can also engage with it creatively, and that's another and perfectly legitimate form of engagement with a text. When you read when you read something, and you want to not just Talk about it, not just read it, not just talk about it, but engage your own creativity and relationship to it. Maybe it's visual art. Maybe you want to draw, you know, you're inspired to draw pictures from it, right? Maybe you, maybe it's music. Maybe you write songs. Um, either writing music for some of the songs we don't have music for um, that Tolkien wrote, very many, right? Or maybe it's writing a song about, you know, something in there, perfectly legitimate, Maybe it's storytelling. Maybe you love the story of Fram and the slaying of Skatha the Worm. That idea has such a powerful grip on your imagination that you want to tell the story of Fram and the slaying of Skatha the Worm. Cool. Cool. Guess who spent his entire life doing exactly this? J.R.R. Tolkien was all about creative engagement with the works that he read and loved. He spent literally his entire career doing exactly that. Almost everything he wrote. Like 75% of his writings, about 95% of his creative writings our creative engagements with the works that he loved. That's what he did. That's what he did. He read the Kalevala when he was in college, and he loved it, and it moved him deeply. So what did he do? So what did he do? He wrote Kulervo. He wrote... A, a, and Kulervo is absolutely straight-up Kalevala fanfic. thats It's nothing but Kalevala fanfic. He takes the story from the Kalevala and he retells it, changing some things in his own terms. He, he, he takes it out of the context of the Kalevala and he reworks it in some ways and he kind of makes it his own, but it's straight-up fan fiction of the Kalevala, right? He loves the Arthurian story. Loves the Arthurian story. So what does he do? He writes his own version because he sees, like, oh, you know what here's what i would really like what i would really like is more of the the sort of english anglo-saxon engagement right like that kind of level not the frenchified stuff right you know the post-christian de trois and maori stuff maori's all about the french books right as he keeps saying that again and again um so i'm going to i'm going to i'm going to write it so he writes the fall of arthur right which was finally released uh and uh, we all got to read it in 2012 at last, um, crossing an item off my bucket list. Uh, that was that had always been the top of my list of unpublished Tolkien works I had wanted to read. Um, he, many many elements of the Lord of the Rings and the, especially the Hobbit, are him like reworking and engaging creatively with the works that he loved, down to the point where. Um, like this, the 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 sentence that Hama utters at the gates of Meduseld, are his translation of a line in Beowulf. Basically, his contribution to a scholarly debate. Um, he didn't ever publish an article on this. The the line is, if you know Beowulf, it's when the the coast guard who is who you know Beowulf and his men arrive in Denmark, and um, uh, the coast guard sees them coming. Like his job is to see like if any like. Uh, boats full of warriors land that's your business like you 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 should find out what the heck they're up to and whether we're being invaded right so he goes over to them and talks to them and is like hi um coast guard here what the heck are you doing and Beowulf was like oh we're totally here to help right we hear hrothgar's having some trouble and we're here to help and now the coast guard has to make a call does he bring these armed dudes who might be hostile they might be lying Right. Does he bring them to Hrothgar and possibly or, you know, should he sound the alarm? You know, what should he do? Right. So he has to make a judgment call. And he says this word, which scholars debate about. Like, what does it exactly mean? What he says. Um, Tolkien never wrote an article that he could have done. Right. He could have written an article explaining why he thinks that line in Beowulf means this. But he didn't do that because that's not how he rolled. That's not what he actually liked to do. So what does he do? He writes it into a story. like He writes a whole story in which a parallel situation occurs. That is Hama confronting Gandalf and Aragorn and, and out, Legley, Legolas and Gimli. Um, that's not the first time I've uh, interchanged their names like that. Um, uh, but anyway, uh, Legolas and Gimli. The four of them, right? And he's confronting them and he decides to let them in. And to let Gandalf keep his staff, right? Um, and the thing that he says is what Tolkien's argument is what that Coast Guard means at that point. Again, what's he do? He's, he's creatively engaging with Beowulf here, right? That is what is happening. Any adaptation is a creative engagement with a text. And what's more, when it's shifting media, when it's taking what is a written story and it is making it into a film or a TV series or whatever, you're changing, you're translating from one media to another. You have now two jobs. One, you're creatively engaging with that story. You are one of those other minds and hands uh, who are applying drama, uh, you know, who are working in drama uh, as uh, part of those stories. Um, But you're also translating between one medium and another. You can't just do the same thing. It doesn't work at all, any more than translating from one language to another. There are always choices that you have to make. It's a complicated, complicated situation. Um, so, again, there have there've, there've been <laughs> there are several tweets that I saw this past weekend where people were like, but Tolkien says this, so they can't do that in the show. And I'm like, you sweet summer child, <laughs> that's not how it works. That's that we get, We need to think through what is the adaptation situation now. Again, um, if you don't want that, like if you're not interested at all, you know you don't want to engage with that. You don't want to see anybody creatively engaging with Tolkien's works. You're not interested in the translation choices they're going to have to make in translating something from book to screen. That's okay. That's You're well within your rights to do that. In which case, my advice to you is stop it. Tune it out, man. Tune it out. It's not a big deal. You don't have to watch. Nobody's going to make you. Nobody's going to make you. Nobody's going to force you to be interested in this. Right? So if the very idea of adapting, of engaging creatively, with, if that's alien to you, that's okay. That's okay. You do you. You do you. But just understand that you are kind of separating yourself, and you're separating yourself from what Tolkien himself did, from what his works actually do, themselves engaging other works creatively. It's another way in which Tolkien saw himself as part of this cycle. Don't the great tales never end? No, they don't ever end, Sam, um, and they don't ever end. Not as not tales, right? They don't ever end, and they didn't begin Right. You could also say, you know, I keep quoting Sam on the stairs of Cirith Ungol, but to quote Gandalf to Bilbo in the uh, Council of Elrond, um, starting things is too big of a claim for any hero. Right. Um, Just as Bilbo didn't start this affair with the ring, so Tolkien didn't start this with his stories. Right. The Lord of the Rings is not the Lord of the Rings is as good as it is, um, is the tremendous work that it is because it's not completely original. Oh man, the modern world is obsessed with originality. Um, Tolkien was not, and most of the world prior to the very recent days was not. Um, if something has its roots in real stories, right, if it's part of that wonderful cycle of creative engagement, right? With great stories of the past. That's what's really good, right? That's where real literary power lies. That's where mythic power lies. Not not just in making up something that nobody ever thought of before. That's cheap. Um, anybody can invent a silly story that no one ever thought of before, and possibly never thought of for good reason, right? Because it's silly. Um, anyway, so yeah, if you if you're not into it, it's totally fine. Just um, just tune it out, man. Tune it out. And it's okay. I'm not going to judge you. It's fine. You don't have to be into this. You really don't. There are a lot of people, including some of the greatest Tolkien scholars that I know, who are totally not into the adaptation thing at all. And they just tune it out. And that's fine. I can respect that. I don't agree with it. And I'm going to explain why I don't. I'm going to explain what I think um, is to be gained uh, by engaging uh, with it. Um, but, um, but it's totally, it's totally fine. It's totally fine. Um, okay. A couple other things, a couple other things. Um, a few cautions. I feel like I have to start with a few cautions here because again, like if this is, these are just, they're things I've been seeing again and again and I'm just, there's no, I can't most of the, most of the tweets I've gotten, right? Uh, Twitter is where I've mostly been. I haven't even looked at most of the, uh, uh, comments on the video and stuff like that. But, um, uh, most of the tweets that I've gotten, I've, my primary response is just like, I, like, I, I can't, uh, there's no way even to begin to address this. So here, and now I have a little bit more scope to explain things. Let me explain a couple cautions that I think are so important um, that everybody keep in mind. And the first, beware of critfic. Let me explain that because I made that term up. Uh, critfic- I made up the term, I did not make up the concept. Critfic, of course, is uh, uh, is, is modeled on fanfic, right? But it's the evil version um, of fanfic. Fanfic is good. Fanfic is legitimate. Uh, it's a legitimate creative engagement uh, with a beloved work. Uh, critfic is not legitimate. Critfic is always to be avoided. Um, Here's what CritFic is. And by the way, my inspiration for this, what I am, what I am working on, what, what, rev- what showed me, what taught me about this was C.S. Lewis. There are two of C.S. Lewis's uh, essays where he talks about CritFic um, at Great Lincoln. That's not his phrase. That's my phrase. Uh, the, fan- the word fanfic hadn't been invented when C.S. Lewis wrote this, so he didn't have that spin-off to do. Um, but um, uh, th- the two essays are his essay on criticism and his essay, uh, Fernseed and Elephants. He talks about it in both places at at great length. And what he's saying is, be careful when you are trying to criticize, when when you're analyzing something, when you're being critical of something, be very careful that you are only talking about the work itself and not making up a story about what was going on in the head of the author when they wrote it or produced it or whatever. If you are making observations and criticisms of the primary work itself, that is perfectly legitimate. And you are welcome to say anything you like about the Amazon trailer or anything else. I have my own criticisms of things that I've seen in the Amazon trailer that I do not love everything that I saw in the Amazon trailer. Um, number one on my list would be the antler dudes. Like who walks around with 50 pounds of antlers strapped to their backs? I don't understand it at all. Um, but anyway, like, so, you know, like whatever, like you can, you can uh, criticisms are fine. Right. But here's what you can't do. I say, you can't, you can. And everybody does watch. Once you see this, pay attention. You'll see everybody does it all over the place. Not just, Amateurs, like not just fans, in comment boxes, you'll see you'll see it in in uh, in in you know journalists, you'll see it in literary critics, you'll see it in professor in professors. It's like everywhere, okay. Um, so okay, what you what crit fic is is again, it's not criticizing the primary thing, and instead making up a story about the motivations or ideas of the people who did it. So when you watch the Amazon trailer and say. They're trying to push their politics on us. You're doing critfic. You're absolutely doing critfic. You don't know. And you can't know. And here's the thing. And this, is, this was C.S. Lewis's primary point. He was like, look, he was talking about his own books. He was talking about, like, he's like, I have read many, many things, many, many guesses that critics have made about what I was thinking and why I did, why I wrote what I wrote. And he's like, 100% of them are wrong. I have never read an accurate, T.S. Lewis says, I've never read an accurate description. And often they're laughably wrong, like just absurdly wrong. There is a huge danger of this. We have a primary text. You have the, the trailer. And if you think it's bad, by all means, tell me, show me what's bad about it, Right? But when you look at it and you say, it's bad. And I say, why is it bad? And you say, it's bad because they're pushing their politics on me. You've said nothing at all about the trailer. All you've said is something about what you guess or fear or dread or speculate is the motivation behind making the movie. And you don't know. And you'll never know. So just avoid it. Avoid it. It is always to be avoided. Um, nothing productive can come of fic. Um, Even if you turn out to be right, which I bet you won't, but even if you turn out to be right, um, you've not done anything useful. You've not said a single useful thing about that trailer, right? Or about the the work of art that's actually being uh, developed, right? So avoid, try as hard as you can. Pay attention to your own self. When you catch yourself not saying something about the work, but speculating about why they did the work, or what they meant by the, what they probably meant by the work, or what they want us to think as a consequence of the work, you're just doing crit pick. Um So, okay. So again, I, and thereby, horribly weakening your own case. You, you may be completely right. That is, your objections to the trailer might be very well founded. The things that you dislike about it might be actual evils right? They might be real weaknesses that we're going to see are going to, end. maybe, and you know, those things you're going to turn out to be right. And it's going to be a bad show because of those things that you're seeing, but you've not helped me see it. You've not told me a thing about it, right? Help me understand, help all of us understand, talk about the thing, don't speculate about their motivation. So that's crit Always be careful. Now, here's the other thing. And I want to be really cautious here. Um, because, okay, see, here you go. Those of you who are saying like, "Amazon is a force of evil, look, I, I, look, what is that to the purpose? What is that to the purpose? How does that bear on the question of whether or not that trailer is good? It is utterly irrelevant. I don't care. OK, I care. But I don't care when it comes to it's irrelevant to the question of, is the show good or not? Is it a good work of art? Is it a thoughtful and interesting adaptation? Totally irrelevant. If all you want to do is talk about how much you dislike Amazon, that's okay. I mean, that's a valid topic of conversation, I suppose, but it isn't this topic of conversation. That's not what we're talking about here, right? Any more than I'm particularly interested in Tolkien's own life. I don't care. I don't. I'm not about psychoanalyzing Tolkien either. I'm about what he wrote and his stories. Um, oh, hang on a second, Charlie. I don't understand. I don't understand what you think I'm pretending not to understand. I don't. Uh, I don't understand that. Um, yeah, very interesting. Um, okay. Anyway, well, remember, as I said, long show. We're gonna be talking. I'm. I, we're gonna talk every week for years, right? Lots to cover. i just trying to cover some general ground here. Here's my second caution, and you'll like this even less probably, but this is so important. It's even more important than the first one. The question of faithfulness to, quote, what Tolkien wrote. This is hard, and I ask you please to be patient and hear me here, because I'm not going to say what you think, probably think I'm saying, (laughs) but anyway... What Tolkien wrote where? What Tolkien wrote when? The fact of the matter, there is no simple objective answer to almost any lore question. Somebody asked me last night, tell me once and for all, do you think that dwarf women have beards? And I said, I think that dwarf women have beards. I think that dwarf women don't have beards. I think that there's no such thing as dwarf women. Tolkien said all three of those things. Those, those are all true. And that's one tiny example. I'll come back to dwarf beards later. I promise. I promise to tell the story. I'll tell the story. Um, one tiny example. Dwarves used to be bad guys. When Tolkien first started introducing dwarves into his story, they were listed among the children of Melkor. They were like orcs and trolls. They were evil they were pretty much evil all the way up until they weren't like, they weren't orcs in the sense that they were mindlessly enslaved to Morgoth's will they were like kind of sleazier than orcs in the earlier writings sleazier because they were like warmongering profiteers uh, who were selling arms and weapons to both sides and enriching themselves uh, the elves and the orcs right? Um, so they were like slightly less evil but bigger scumbags than orcs in that way. That's that's dwarves in the 1920s and 30s. That's dwarves. And then he writes The Hobbit. Oh my goodness. And suddenly there's a change. Not suddenly. You can still hear it in The Hobbit. Right? Dwarves are not heroes. Right? But calculating people with a high opinion of the value of money, he says in The Hobbit. Right? The Hobbit does not forget what dwarves were. Right? But we see them become something else. And he goes with it. And, and then in The Lord of the Rings, we meet Gimli. And through Gimli, get to see... Dw- and then post-Gimli, we get the expansion of things. And he writes the of Durans folks appendix, right? And dwarves are changed forever. Now dwarves are clearly one of the free peoples. And you're right, and you're saying, but wait a second, what about the Aule and Yovana passage of the Silmarillion, written way later than that? Part of the later revelation... The, the later evolution of dwarves in Tolkien's mind, so much fun! So this is awesome. Like I I, I don't want like I, again um, I, another kind of typical Twitter exchange I was seeing and, and sometimes attempting to to uh, uh, weigh in on over the weekend was people objecting to the idea of contradictions. In Tolkien's work B- basically, people who are treating Tolkien's work as it like, like fundamentalists, essentially insisting there can be no contradictions in Tolkien's work. And that's if you read all of Tolkien's, if you actually read all of the history of Middle earth, it's not just a silly thing to say, um, it's a, a quite impossible thing to say. Tolkien's ideas involved radically in many ways. And he's constantly changing and niggling. That's what he did throughout his life until he died, he was doing this, right? And his ideas keep growing and changing and it's fascinating to watch. There's the story that Tolkien, if, like you take the Lord of the Rings, right? There's the story that Tolkien wrote in the Lord of the Rings. There it is, right? And then there's the story, there's a whole other dimension to that story. Like the fourth dimension, the time dimension. And when you go back and you see, like, where did this story grow out of? And where does the story go? How does he, because he continues to think about the Lord of the Rings story and to contextualize it and fit it into the bigger picture of his world, that, 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 that broad cycle member of, the, of the, the interrelated legends that he was describing in that paragraph to Milton Waldman. He continues to develop that and to, 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 to make them fit together better and better. That's his whole goal. That's why he never published the Silmarillion because he was still doing that really big project, um, instead of public, you know trying to polish up something for publication. Um, so, that's that's what Tolkien wrote. That's the story that Tolkien wrote. That whole thing, all of that stuff, is what Tolkien wrote. Almost no. I've been doing the Tolkien professor thing for thirteen years now. I have answered thousands of Tolkien questions online, in person, at events, all over the place. right? I've had thousands of conversations with people about Tolkien. And it's trust me, it's impossible. There are very few questions that can simply be answered. You always have to qualify. Well, in The Lord of the Rings, he says this. Though earlier he said this. And later he says this. Um, If you want to glimpse of this is why um those of you who have seen the videos i did for wired last year last couple years um if uh if you've ever seen the each and every one that did on each and every race of uh in tolkien's world um see in that video when the wired people that was the first one i did with wired and they approached me and they said okay we want to do an each and every video and they explained the each and every concept to me and they said okay so just tell us like tell us about like who elves are and who dwarves are, and who hobbits are, and who men are. And I was like, oh, you can't even do that. And so I gave him a choice. I'm like, look, I can either say, this is going to just be about the Lord of the Rings. And we can just, I, I, I try to answer those things as simply as possible from within the framework of the Lord of the Rings only. Or I could give you a, a glimpse of the bigger picture. And they were into the bigger picture thing. Uh, and so I did, and, and, it, that, and I thought they did a marvelous job editing. Um, it came out pretty well, I thought, um, like as, as brief an overview as I could give, not just of like what we learn about elves in the Lord of the Rings, but like the traject, the historical trajectory of, elves. like what elves meant to Tolkien and how they developed in his stories over time and dwarves and humans and hobbits and <laughs> Balrogs and all these things. Right. Um, and to me, this is, that's the answer to the, like when you're asking, like, what did Tolkien write? That's, that, that's the answer to that question. And if you want the answer to be simple, if you have an answer that you, and this is the hard part, if you have an answer that you love and that you kind of cling to because you love it, right? This concept, is, it's, it's always been uh, a big part of your own imagination of Middle-earth. Um, you're, you're gonna be resistant. You're going to be resistant to even, again, other things that Tolkien himself wrote um, and the ways in which Tolkien takes what he wrote before and incorporates it into the story. Did you know, for instance, um, you you know that passage in um, uh, that passage in of Durin's Folk in Appendix A um, that says, some have said, right, there's this legend among men that there are no dwarf women um, and that they just emerge from the rock. But that, of course, is absurd. And then he goes on to explain about dwarf women. Um, He's quoting himself. That absurd legend that he's recycling there was something that he said about dwarves earlier on. But then he decided that's not the case. So instead of being like, I'm going to pretend I never wrote that, he takes the earlier idea and he incorporates it into his story as, like, an incorrect opinion. That is to be corrected. That is awesome. Like, how cool is that? Um, just like the... Not exactly like, but very like what he does with the first edition of The Hobbit, um, which was quite different than the edition of The Hobbit that everybody, you know, here has read, um, uh, where Bilbo and Gollum parted on friendly terms, and uh, uh, and Gollum was fully prepared to give him the ring, and was only disappointed that he didn't have the ring to give him anymore. Um and then he changes the story, right? He changes the story, but keeps the old version of the story around and incorporates that as the false story that Bilbo had told. Genius, genius retconning. Tolkien is the best retconner ever. Absolutely, David, the master of retcon. Um, okay, but... Um, so, you we have to keep this in mind. Whenever you're saying something like, but Tolkien didn't say that. Stop. When you catch yourself doing this, stop. Just, I urge you to pause. Pause. And realize there's very few things in Tolkien that are that firm, that are that solid. The story was always developing. And therefore, one of the things that this means, when you're doing an adaptation, you have to choose. You get to choose. What version? Next episode... Episode two, we're going to have our first guest. Um, and uh, one of the things I'm going to be talking about with our first guest is going to be exactly one of these questions Gilgalad. Gilgalad, I know, is how you pronounce the name. I've been pronouncing it wrong since I was eight, and I can't change, so I don't apologize. Um, uh, I can do it when I'm reading the poem Gilgalad was an elven king. Uh, the Sam's meter forces me to pronounce it properly, um, but usually I'm not going to, so there it is. Um, anyway, um, uh, okay, so here is, um, here is and Carl, we will come to talking about dwarf female beards. I promised I'd tell the story, and I will tell the story. I'm trying to talk about important things first. Um, okay. So, um what was I just saying? Oh yeah, Gilgallad. Um, who is Gilgallad's dad? Who is the father of Gilgallad? It's an interesting question. Tolkien changed his mind about that. There are a couple different versions of that around. One that Christopher Tolkien chose for the published Silmarillion, and another, right? Who um uh who is What's the answer? They have to choose. The Amazon people have to choose. What version of Gilgalad? Who is he? What's his background? What's his story? Tolkien wrote a couple different things about that, and they have to choose which one they're going to do, which one they're going to make true of their Gilgalad. Um, they have to they have to make that decision, right? Um, so again, it's it's not just a question. Uh, of um, it's not just a question of what is uh, of what Tolkien said right? what Tolkien wrote it's not exactly like that um, and um, I <sighs> sorry there's a bunch of folks in the YouTube chat who are not listening to what I'm saying and that's okay like, if you just want to come and talk, I guess you can just come and talk. Um, uh, we're going to get, I promise, we will get to your concerns. These things are important. We can't even talk about them if we don't think through some of these issues first. Okay, let's talk about some common fears. Let's get to some of these. Here are some of the major things that I've been hearing. Number one, fears about Tolkien's legacy. Uh, that, and by that, I mean will people still love Tolkien if Amazon screws this up? I totally understand this fear. Totally understand this fear. Um, it is, I had it very strongly. I was seriously worried about this before the Peter Jackson films came out. Like 1999, I was deeply concerned about what the Peter Jackson films would do to Tolkien's legacy. Very concerned about that. Um, I am not concerned about that, at all. Will people still love it? Yep, yep. Will people still? Uh, 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 yes. And look, we've. I know. I. I'm not trying to be slighting at all when I say this, but I think that people under the age of 35 are more worried about this than people over the age of 35. We've seen it, <laughs> right? I mean. There are some of us, and I, you know, I'm not old enough. I don't remember when the Bakshi film came out uh, in the theaters. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm myself too young for that. Um, but, um, but, Ray, that's exactly right. After Bakshi, Rankin-Bass, and Jackson, both of Jackson's trilogies, I don't think Tolkien's legacy is in jeopardy. I don't think so either. Um, I hated the Hobbit films. Um, and yet, it's fine. Tolkien's legacy, Tolkien fandom, um, we are still, I am still spending now f- 12 to 15 hours a week live broadcasting discussions of Tolkien's works um, after, you know, numerous bad adaptations. I mean, I, myself, I call the Bakshi adaptation, visually, anyway, a bad adaptation. The screenplay is fascinating. Peter Beagle wrote the screenplay, and it's... um, um It's a a, a fascinating pastiche of quotations. Sticks closer to the text than any film adaptation, uh, any film script I've ever seen. Um, So that's a fascinating and really cool thing about the Bakshi uh, Fellowship of the Ring. The visuals I find dreadful. Dreadful. Um, Almost across the board. There's almost nothing I like about the Bakshi visual adaptation uh, of The Lord of the Rings. Um, Rankin-Bass... I like most of the music, most of the music, with, of course, the very pointed exception of that horrible theme song, um, uh, the Greatest Adventure thing. Oh, my goodness. Um, the Peter Jackson films, the Lord of the Rings films, excellent movies, excellent movies. Um, did some rotten adaptation of Tolkien. Um, there are a lot of... I just. As far as their relationship to the books are concerned, um, I still dislike so much about the Peter Jackson films. So much. Um, but they're awesome movies. Really good. Really, really good. The, um, uh, the um, Hobbit films engaged with the text in some fascinating ways. Absurd, often but fascinating ways. Um, terrible movies, and yet here we are. Like ten years later, here we are. Right, <laughs> here we are, still talking about Tolkien. The fact that you have these fears about Tolkien's legacies still now means it's it's going to be fine. It really, it really is. It really is going to be fine. Um, the Star Wars effect. Another common fear people always not always very frequently bring up Star Wars. When I say don't worry so much, we'll all be okay people say, but what about Star Wars? And I think that there's an important difference here um, again my uh, what I would summarize with Tolkien's legacy, the Tolkien's legacy fear is will people still love Tolkien you know in 20 years or will this like destroy Tolkien you know in the mind of the reading public and soon no one's going to read Tolkien anymore, no one's going to love Tolkien anymore because Amazon will have wrecked it, right? That's what I mean by the Tolkien's legacy fear. By the Star Wars effect, what I mean is basically people saying, well, I still love it, right? We're talking about, and I'm not saying this is all Star Wars fans, I'm not making any, sta- I am myself a very casual, I am a Star Wars fan, but a casual, very casual Star Wars fan, Um so, you know, I'm not making any claims about this, but but again, what let me just describe what I'm hearing. What I'm hearing is people saying, "I love Star Wars. I loved Star Wars, and then it got ruined. And now I can't even I, I can't even watch the original trilogy the same way anymore. I hear that, and I get that. Um, here is where I would say, this is a completely different situation. This is a completely different situation. Um, and here's why I think this is so importantly different from the Star Wars thing. Um, the first time, I know most people are still, like, talking about the sequel trilogy, uh, The Force Awakens and such. Um, but people who are older (laughs) have been complaining since The Phantom Menace came out, right? Um... And I heard somebody say, yeah, no, wait, but the prequels were not the same kind of problem because they were part of Lucas's original vision. Whereas the sequel trilogy is not at all part of Lucas's original vision to which I would respond, no, that's why it was a problem. That's why it was a problem. And that's why I think it has infected the appreciation of the original trilogy. Because when Lucas got a chance to reveal, to say, no, here is my whole story that I wanted to tell, was horrible. The prequel trilogies are bad movies, and the story is banal and uh, just one of the most—they're It's they're, they're horrible. They're horrible. I mean, the the progression of it—like, it's got to be about—you like, need the whole arc of Anakin Skywalker. Yeah, but you wrecked the early arc of Anakin Skywalker. Anakin Skywalker going in and deciding to kill the—you know, going in five minutes— Uh, you know, from I would do anything to save Padme to, okay, I guess I'll kill the younglings and now I'm going to try to murder Padme. Like, just the worst depiction of somebody, like, going from the light side to the dark side, I use that as, that's my paradigm for a negative example for how to tell that story. It's just awful. It's just awful, okay? Um, and yes, it influences. My wife loves the Star Wars trilogy, um, and absolute refuses to even let the prequel series be discussed in her presence because she doesn't want to lose her love of the original trilogy. Anyway, my point is, again, I'm not trying, I'm trying to deviate too far into Star Wars criticism here. What I'm saying is, um, I'm not worried about the Star Wars effect for Tolkien. Not certainly not myself. Again, I, I, the Hobbit movies were dreadful. They didn't make me. They didn't make me love the Hobbit any less. The differences between, in fact, there are things that I appreciate even more about The Hobbit now because of seeing The Hobbit films, even because of how horrible they were, right? Um, And I think it's a complete, I I think it's a false parallel. It's an entirely false parallel. First of all, because we're talking about something which involved in its transition, like its transition from the golden days of Star Wars when all we had was the first uh, three movies, and then the later days where things have gone differently, right? Uh, the author himself, George Lucas himself, was the bridge between those things and started this whole process and changed the whole thing, right? Um, uh, anyway, there's... Um, uh, I, I'm not... I, <laughs> I thought long and hard before bringing up Star Wars, because I knew it would get, as I can see, is happening uh, on um, uh, on the YouTube chat. Uh, people digressing into heated debates about Star Wars and the Abram films. Look, I don't care. All I'm saying, I'm trying to point out fears people have about the Amazon show, right? And that is that if I watch it and it's bad, I'm not going to be able to look at Tolkien the same way. And what I'm saying is, I think it's a false parallel. And I'm telling you, I wouldn't worry about that. And we'll talk a little bit more positively um, about why I think that's not going to be effect. Here's the other common fear that I see. The Jacksonian knee-jerk effect. Beware the Jacksonian knee-jerk effect. Um, what I mean is the reactions, so many of the reactions that I'm seeing from people, even when they are couched in terms of Tolkien's text, the emotional power of them seems to me entirely to be rooted in the imagery and concepts of the Peter Jackson films. Simplest example. Simplest example. Um, simplest example. Short-haired elves. Short-haired elves. The visceral hatred of the idea, the outrage that people expressed when they heard just the rumor at the beginning that elves were going to have short hair in the movies, just appalled everybody, right? Not everybody, but there was a vocal group of people who were just appalled by this. There is no textual reason to be appalled at the idea that an elf should have short hair. Tolkien almost never talks about this. Almost never talks about the length of hair. It's just not a thing. Tolkien does very little visual description at all, actually. What color is Gimli's hair? And beard, right? Um, anyway, we just don't know this. It's a blank slate. Tolkien left it a blank slate. As far as I can see, on purpose. And yet, people see an elf with short hair and they just say, that's wrong! That's wrong! And they get mad. Why? Why? Beca- the Jacksonian knee-jerk effect. Because there are things about the Peter Jackson films that have worked their way into your mind that you have identified with Tolkien, and it isn't so. This is why, this is one of the main reasons why I'm looking forward to the Amazon show. I am, because there are so many ways in which I think it's going to be a helpful corrective to force you to say, okay, wait, hang on a second. Is that Tolkien or is that me? Is that Peter Jackson, right? And think not just, think just, uh, not, not just, not just, Elf hair. Think about elf affect. The, that thing that Jackson does throughout the film, where all of the elves are always speaking like this and right... Yeah, I, that, is that Tolkien's elves? Is that, is that straight out of Tolkien? I don't think so. I don't think there's any support for that kind of attitude in elves. In fact, quite the contrary. Um, when Frodo and Pippin and Sam meet Gildor... In the Shire, in Chapter Three of *The Fellowship of the Ring*, they're, they raz them. The elves raz them, right? Look at what the how the elves talk to the dwarves when the dwarves arrive in Chapter Three of *The Hobbit* in Rivendell, right? Elves can be outrageous. I, I mean, it, it, it's they're not at all like, "Oh, hello, greetings, Frodo of the Shire," right? Like that's not how they you now like. Galadriel and Celeborn use that kind of diction because of the occasion. They are receiving them in their hall, in the ruling hall, right? Uh, before their seats. Um, yeah, but um, that's not Tolkien's Elves. I don't see that in Tolkien's Elves anywhere. Again, they speak formally on formal occasions, so do lots of people in Tolkien, right? But that's it's Jacksonian knee-jerk effect. Just be careful. It's just... Make sure, make sure that uh, something. And now this brings us back. I am now going to tell the story of why I said Tolkien didn't say that dwarf women have beards. Are you ready to actually hear the story now? I'll tell the story because what I was talking about was the Jacksonian knee jerk effect. i would call it that in the video. First of all, the uh, interview I did with IGN um, from which they drew that video, we talked for three hours. It was a three hour discussion. He just kept asking me questions. that were really good questions. We just kept talking. It was a three-hour discussion from which they, what was it, like 35 minutes in the end or something like that? Anyway, like they, he picked out little sound bites all over the place. When I was talking about dwarf beards, I brought up dwarf beards in the context of this exact effect. I was talking about how um, surprising I found a lot of people's reactions to the uh, to to some from a Tolkien lore perspective, small things uh, in the trailer. The short hair was one example. Um, another example was the dwarf, the bearded dwarf, women thing. And I was so I was talking about so then I was talking about the appendices. Like, if you've read The Lord of the Rings, and you know and love The Lord of the Rings, just The Lord of the Rings, and I know the majority of Tolkien fans have not read The Silmarillion. And the number of them that have not read not only the Silmarillion but the entire history of Middle Earth is very, very small indeed. The vast majority of Tolkien fans base their Tolkien have their Tolkien knowledge. I'm most of them read the appendices, right? But um, uh, most of them just know the Lord of the Rings. So I was talking about like within the frame of the Lord of the Rings, right? Um, Tolkien never says it. He doesn't ever say. dwarf women have beards he says one sentence which can be interpreted that way right he says that when they travel abroad and the rare occasions when they travel abroad abroad they're sometimes mistake you know they can be mistaken for the dwarf men that's all he says he doesn't mention anything about beards why is it that people are everybody like that's such a thing with people the jacksonian knee-jerk effect because peter jackson made a, a funny joke about it right he brought the the bearded dwarf women thing, which is legit. Tolkien talked about that. I know he did in the Wars of Middle-earth, and Peter Jackson brought that in, right? With Aragorn's famous joke, it's the beards, right? And it was funny. I thought that was funny, right? And then Gimli refers to it again, movie Gimli refers to it again, right? When he's drunk, which is totally not in the book in any way, right? Um, about the hairy women, right? And stuff. So uh, In the minds of people whose imaginations of the books have been shaped by the Jackson films, bearded dwarf women is like gospel. Gospel. And the point I was making in talking about this effect, how important it is for us to call that into question, for us to distance ourselves from that, is to say, you know, just because Peter Jackson made that particular choice, again, an adaptation has to choose. And you can you choose from there's there's this whole scope of things that Tolkien said, right? Um, You can choose what it is you want to emphasize and which things you want to say. Um, They made that choice. Perfectly legitimate choice. No problems with it at all. Um, As I said, I thought the joke was really funny. Um, I think it works just fine. Right. But. um, But it's not like the heart of the Lord of the Rings. My point was merely that the people who are incredibly invested, and of course, when I was talking about this in the IGN interview, I had not seen the tip of the investment iceberg in bearded dwarf women, right? Um, And my, my, uh, what I was talking about has been reaffirmed a hundredfold since then. The furor with which people are willing to defend the idea, to say that, like, Having an unbearded dwarf woman is like an unimaginable violation of Tolkien's vision for dwarves. Not true at all. Not true at all. Um, Certainly not a central part of his imagination. Um, So um, anyway, that's, um, that's... where those sound bites came from, and the whole conversation was, and not only um, were those sound bites then taken out of the context of discussing this Jacksonian knee jerk effect, um, but then they were also put like in the first ten seconds of the video, which I think in retrospect was a little unfortunate. Um, but um, anyway, um, yeah. So that's. That's the story. That's the story for uh, uh, for why I was talking about that. And I still hold, by the way, um, that like I don't. So I'm not. I'm not apologizing for anything that I said. I'm explaining the context of that conversation we were having. And I still think it very important. I think it not a violation of Tolkien's vision for dwarves. Um, again, to say that it's a violation of Tolkien's vision for dwarves for dwarf women not to have beards, I mean is like saying it's a violation of Tolkien's vision for dwarves that there are dwarf women at all. Because Tolkien said that there aren't any dwarf women. He did say that. <laughs> he did. He did. Um, his ideas change over time, right? So, um, you know, let's um, let's think about that. Let's talk about that. Let's... Wait a second. Let's wait and see how they actually depict dwarf women in the show other than in the uh, what have we gotten? Three, four total seconds worth of dwarf women in one picture. Um, let's um, let's 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 wait and see, uh, and get a primary text to discuss before we draw conclusions about that. Okay, um, exciting opportunities because I think there are some exciting. So those are I was addressing some fears. Some of the those are some of the patterns that I've been seeing uh, in the fears that people have been expressing. One second before I leave the Jacksonian knee jerk thing. I don't want to just diss it, right? The one thing that Peter Jackson's film did best, the one thing that I don't think anybody, okay, you can never say anybody, there's always somebody, but um, the almost universal response to Jackson's films has been that the world, the visuals, right? Like, Like, he nailed it. It's one of my clearest memories from sitting in the theater watching The Fellowship of the Ring when it first came out. One of my clearest memories was just sitting there during the, like, you know, helicopter scenes and stuff, right? When we're getting these big panoramic visions and, um, and just saying, perfect. It's perfect. It's, it's perfect. It's exactly it. Um, and I think that a lot of us have had that experience. A lot of us have had that experience in watching Peter Jackson's films. Um, so I get it and I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, um, I don't criticize anybody for that. And so I know there's, it's going to be weird seeing a different vision is going to be strange. It will be different and we can't help it. Human beings, we're, we're wired for this. When we are used to something and we like something and we see something different, then, um, yeah, yeah. Um, we're not going to... Our immediate response is going to be like, oh, that's not right. I don't like it. It's, it's, it's very natural. We're all going to do that, right? I don't think less of anybody for having that response. Um, but let's uh, either consider the possibility that maybe all things that are different are not bad. I feel like I'm having the conversation I keep having with my 13-year-old son about food. Um, Maybe something that's new and different isn't necessarily going to be bad. Um, uh, And guess what? If it is, if you don't like it, that's okay. Um, Unlike the situation my 14-year-old, my 13 to 14, he's about to turn 14, uh, uh, my 13 to 14-year-old son um, finds himself occasionally in you can choose not to consume it he can't always uh it's complicated parenting issues anyway okay um uh, exciting opportunities there are lots of reasons in my opinion and these are other things that again what i'm trying to do here is do a kind of a survey of things that i've heard and seen um in interacting with other fans the exciting opportunity to experience untold stories, oh man, um. I've always wanted. To think about the story of Gilgalad, Gilgalad is one of my favorite Tolkien characters who never gets his story told, ever, ever gets a story told, right. I mean, Gilgalad was the man. Gilgalad ruled as High King of the Noldor. Every other, like, we know all the other High Kings of the Noldor, right? I mean, everybody who's read The Silmarillion knows Finway and Feanor and Fingolfin and Turgon even, right? Though he's not for very long, and Fingon, though he's even for less. Um, they get all the press, right? And then there's Gilgalad, And what did he do? All he did was be High King of the Noldor for more than ten times as long as any of them. Put together, all of them put together, in fact. Ten times as long as all of them put together. Just about. Pretty close. Um, anyway, huge deal. Huge deal, right? Um, Gilgoad is awesome. I love the Gilgoad story. I want to know more about the Gilgoad story. I can't wait to think more about the Gilgoad story. And there are other things. The young Goadriel story. Oh man. Um, I am I love and Tolkien loved the young Galadriel story. We see him thinking and rethinking and talk about options that they have to choose among. Um, Tolkien went back and, and you know, may or may not know. um, uh, I'm sure many of you know that the character of Galadriel was not part of his original Silmarillion. It was not part of his original mythology. Um, She was not a character that he imported from his old stories, like other concepts and characters who get imported. Um, Galadriel was not that. Um, Goadriel was invented on the spot. When the company got to Lothlorien, the scene with Haldir at the edge of the, like, on the flet and everything, where they get in, and the orcs are chasing them, and then they meet the elves, and the elves say, like, well, you're suspicious, but it's okay, we'll take you. And they go up into the Flat and the orcs go by, and they encounter Gollum. That was going to be the incident, right? That was going to be the whole story. After that, they were going to move on. That was plan A when he wrote that part of the story, right? But then, like, while they were there, after he got them there, and then he was like, Yeah, they should get taken into the elf country, right? They should, like, th- th- there should be a queen. Yeah, maybe there's an elf queen who lives in this forest and they should go see her. And boom, Galadriel was born. And when Galadriel was born, it was with a boom. And she became a huge character in Tolkien's mind. Um, and so, therefore, he finishes writing the Lord of the Rings, and he's like, "Well, shoot! Now I've got this awesome Galadriel character. I need to write her back into the rest of the story." And he did that, and redid that, and redid that, uh, and thought about Galadriel's story in a bunch of different ways. And they're fascinating to look at all of the different ways uh, in which he um, thought about um, in which he thought about Galadriel's story. So, what's Amazon going to do? They have a lot to choose from. Right, But again, oh man, oh, so much Jacksonian knee-jerk reaction to seeing Galadriel in armor. Galadriel would never be an action character. Yeah, she totally was. There is very strong textual support in some of the stories that he's telling about her to say she would totally have been a leader. Um, Yeah, it completely fits with several of the Galadriel stories that he tells. But what does it fit least well with? What it fits least well with is Kate Blanchett's portrayal of Galadriel in the Peter Jackson films. Especially the Lord of the Rings movies. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, exactly. So, um, anyway, I... I um, so, okay. Eric, I will permit the digression. Because I can't help it. And then Mike, yours as well. Um, how do I feel about the show's description of Galadriel is full of emotional uh, emotional turmoil. I love it. I love it. She is at the end of a long and complicated emotional and spiritual arc when we meet her in the the Fellowship of the Ring. right? Um, She's been through a lot and she has been tempted and she has done good things and she has done bad things. Um, I love the idea. Um, Where we get her, we get her near the very end when she's been in quiet contemplation for a couple millennia now and is nearing retirement. Um, there's a lot to, in, the, in the beginning of the second age, oh man, there is still so much. There is still so much that she hasn't done that she wants to prove. Why does she stay in Middle Earth? Why doesn't she go back? She's got reasons, right? She has reasons. What's she trying to accomplish? She's trying to accomplish things, right? Is she not torn about that? Is she still guilty? Has she been banned by the Valar? That's a story that comes in once, that she's not allowed to come back, right? Yeah, is there turmoil there? Sure, there can be turmoil. Why can't there be turmoil there? Um, I love that. And Mike uh, was saying, justice for Kelleborn. he needs to be super awesome to pair with Galadriel appropriately. Oh, I hope so, right? Man, give me a reason to love Kelleborn. Um... I I tease Kelleborn all the time. You know, trophy husband Kelleborn. I I tease uh, uh, Kelleborn kind of unmercifully. Um, But um, I would love to see an adaptation, a version of this story told in which we're given a reason to know why does she marry that dude in the first place? Um, Why does she marry him? Right? Um, I think that would be... uh, I think that would be fun. I think that would be fun. Um, but um, anyway, so we'll, we'll see. But anyway, I don't want to get too short. Distra- we'll, we'll talk about Galadriel again. We'll, 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 I, we'll try to get to everything in, over the course of the next weeks and everything. Um, let me f- try to finish my overview here. Um, now, by the way, of course, I understand when I say oh, it's experience untold stories. I know there's some of you might be thinking, yeah, and what if they ruin them? What if they ruin them? What if they're not going to ruin them? They can't ruin them, right? What if that? What if the versions that they tell are bad? Well, then I do it with the same thing I do with the Hobbit movies, and not worry about them anymore, right? Um, I, um, yeah, I don't. Um, I'm not bothered. Again, the Hobbit films don't negatively impact my view of the Hobbit at all, um, and if their version of Gilgalad's story ends up being shallow. Unconvincing, uninteresting, or you know, horrible in any one of other possible ways. What will I do? I'll go back to imagining Gilgalad as I always have, right? And but there's more, actually. Let me continue because something else will have happened. Um, what will have happened though? The other another exciting opportunity in this adaptation coming out is the wonder of anticipation and if there's one thing I wish I could convince people of, I wish I could help people to see this. And it's not just people who uh, are afraid and angry towards the adaptation and the trailer who don't understand this. It's a lot of people who are excited and hyped about it, hyped about it, um, that um, don't understand this. Um, And that is... The way in which we are, in this moment, now, we know kind of what they're going to cover, right? As time goes by, we're given more and more snippets of detail. These next six months, these next six months are golden, golden. It's a golden time. It's a golden time in which we are pushed to learn more, learn more about Tolkien. What does he say about gil what, what are those different versions of the Galadriel story? What was Tolkien thinking about Galadriel in the Second Age? If you don't know, we can find out. We can talk about it. We can think it through, right? We can look at what Tolkien said about that and think about its implications. And we can think like, okay, let's put ourselves into the, into the place of the adapters. What choices would we make? And what are the effects of those choices? What are the choice options that we have? And if we made this choice, what would that, how would that fit with the story? And what would it suggest about other parts of the story? How would it work in these other places? How would it fit in or not fit in with other things that Tolkien said? Oh my goodness, it's so much fun. We can learn so much about Tolkien's world. We can even learn a lot about adaptation itself as we think these things through and realize they're going to have to make a choice about this. They're either going to have to choose this or they're going to have to choose this. What would be the implications of that? What are the pros and cons of making this choice versus that choice? um and that's fun that's fun and what notice what we get to do in a small way we get to engage with these stories creatively ourselves right that is so much fun it is so much fun um and again if you're not into it that's okay i can't make you be into it right um but let me tell you many of you know not all of you do But um, many of you remember The Riddles in the Dark, right? Riddles in the Dark was a podcast series I did for three years uh, with a couple co-hosts, Trish and Dave. And it was about the Hobbit films. We started this in, I think it was 2011. um, Late 2011, maybe early 2012. Um, As I recall, the first Hobbit film was released in December of 2012. I'm pretty sure that's right. Um, My book was published in September of that same year. Um, so either early 2012 or late 2011. I think it was early 2012, come to think of it. Um, we, um, we started a podcast series called Riddles in the Dark. And the whole premise was we were, t- we were talking about the Hobbit films. We were anticipating the Hobbit films. Hadn't come out yet, right? And so what we did was we sat down systematically and kind of worked through the Hobbit book, saying, all right, given the premise that we're doing a film adaptation here, and informed by what we know of what the Peter Jackson team is doing with their adaptation, how do we think it's gonna go? What do we think they're gonna do? Um, what kinds of decisions are they gonna to have to make? What decisions do we hope they're gonna make? What decisions do we actually believe they're gonna make? Um, that was the whole, so we went on for three years, talking about all three of the Hobbit films. Um, and the Hobbit films themselves, of course, turned out to be dreadful. I'm, I'm going to go with dreadful as my adjective for the Hobbit films. Um, but you know what? Those three years were priceless. Um, the dreadfulness of the Hobbit films will never take away from me the fun I had and the learning I did, the experience I gained anticipating the Hobbit films. I learned more about the Hobbit than than I did almost any other time in my life. Um, I came to a new appreciation for Tolkien's story and the development of Tolkien's story, especially thinking about the relationship between The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings and Tolkien's kind of retcon project of how he tried to bring The Hobbit into The Lord of the Rings story increasingly as it went on. Um, I, um, It was awesome. I loved it. I loved it, even though, at the end of the day, I hated the Hobbit films. And I thought that the adaptation they did was terrible. But you know what? It didn't matter to me. It didn't matter to me. Like The Hobbit adaptation that we did, the discussions that we had, those were real, man. Those were still real. And they were good, and I learned, and it was awesome. And you know what? That's what I'm going to do again. At the end of the day, if—I'm not saying it's going to be, but if the Rings of Power show turns out to be horrible— it's not going to bother me. But here's the most important thing. I'm not going to let anybody take away from me the fun of these next six months. These next six months in this broadcast, as we're talking about adaptation issues and thinking through questions, I am preparing to have fun talking about this stuff. And uh, I'm not going to let anybody stop me having fun. No fears or dreads or uncertainties about the final product i don't care about the final product isn't relevant yet it's not relevant yet um so um uh yeah yeah um i'm that's that's where i am that's where i am and because here's the other thing and it kind of goes along with that an adaptation any adaptation will help you to experience the original in new ways Now, this happens in a delightful way when it's a good adaptation, right? For instance, let me give a positive example from the Peter Jackson movies, the Lord of the Rings movies. Uh, Peter Jackson's depiction of Gollum is lovely. It's brilliant. I'm there. I, I love his depiction of Gollum. It is quite different from Tolkien's depiction of Gollum in the books. Quite different. And I don't love everything about what he did with the Gollum story. But the story of Gollum that he tells in the Two Towers, especially the Two Towers and the Return of the King, is a fascinating story. And having seen his Gollum story, I noticed things about Tolkien's Gollum story, which is not the same, but I noticed things about Tolkien's Gollum story that I hadn't really thought about before. But guess what? When an adaptation is bad, I also experience the original in fun and wonderful new ways. I also learn things that I never knew before and come to a higher and greater appreciation of the original than I ever had before, right? Peter Jackson, Lord of the Rings again. Um, What he does with Faramir. What he does with Faramir. I hated what he did with Faramir. Man, I've always said, if I were... Um, you know, if I were legal counsel to the Lord of the Rings characters, there are two characters whom I would encourage to sue Peter Jackson, and they would be Faramir and Treebeard. Um, the others, you know, might have a case, but those two man, could take him to the cleaners uh, for defamation of character. Um, I strongly dislike what he did with Faramir's character in the films. But I still see new things in Faramir that I didn't before right when you notice differences right when you see him depict Faramir in the films and you're like no 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 no, that is not Faramir that is not Faramir then you inevitably ask or at least you should inevitably ask the question well okay how how is it not Faramir how is that different from Tolkien's Faramir why why do I hate this as much as I do why am I reading this, and say, or why am I watching this depiction and saying, that is not Tolkien's Faramir? There are reasons, right? So I go back to the text, and I go back and I look at Faramir, and I gain a, a, a fresh appreciation. The Faramir that I love in the book jumps out at me off the page in ways that it never has for years that I've been reading and rereading, right? So thank you, Peter Jackson, for screwing over Faramir, because now my appreciation of Book Faramir is greater than ever before. Right? Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Now, Darnak the Mage, you were right that there is a real risk that adaptations can replace books in stories. Yeah, they can. There's one level of fun, there's one additional level of fun involved here, though. You get to explain it to people. Right? I've, Spent the last 20 years explaining to Peter Jackson fans some of the things, like when they say things, be like, oh, you know, it's actually quite different from what Tolkien said. And they're like, oh, really? And then we get to talk about it, right? And that's fun. And that too helps you to learn and helps you to appreciate things better. And there are many people who, uh, you know, come to read the books and learn more about the books. And it's cool and it's awesome. Um, anyway, um, that's, um, that's the way it is. <laughs> that's the way it is. Well, I don't have too much time for open questions. I know I digressed and did some. Um, but, um, anyway, these things, these last things I've been talking about, this is why I choose to be positive and engaged. You don't have to, if you don't want to. But this is why I choose to be positive. I'm not going to start hating on things. Um, first, I'm going, to, I'm going to give things a chance. First, I'm going to give things a benefit of the doubt. I'm going to think about things first before I comment on them, like before I start hating them. Um, I mean, I didn't hate Faramir until the actual I actually saw the movie, right? Any trailer bits about Farmir look fine. Um, anyway, so we'll see. Um, but uh, um, And as I say, to me, I, I, it doesn't matter whether it's going to be good or bad. This is our time. This is our time, and we can take these next six months loving and discussing and reveling in Tolkien lore and doing our own critical and creative engagements with Tolkien, and we can have an awesome time doing it. By the way, this is why I hate spoilers. This is why I am not in the business uh, not only am I not in the business of seeking insider information to find out, like, oh, like what really happened, what's going on. Um, not only do I not care about that, I, I'm, I'm hostile <laughs> to it. Right? I don't want to know. Don't tell me. I'm fine. I'm, I'm fine receiving primary texts. Right? Amazon wants to release more trailers, more images, more fun stuff to talk about. I'm, I'm happy for that. Um, but when people tell me things like. I can now confirm. I kind of hate the phrase "I can now confirm." I can now confirm that like that person in the trailer is definitely Finrod or something. I'm like, oh, okay, fine, um, but it would be more fun if you didn't tell me. Um, anyway, <laughs> so that's just my own personal uh, bias when it comes to uh, when it comes to this stuff. Um, uh, anyway, um, okay, I don't have much time for questions. I have to end. Uh, fairly promptly. Um, let me talk a little bit about what's coming up uh, because I know there's a lot of... Um, uh, I appreciate the discussion that's been having. I've been watching... Um, uh, I've been watching uh, much of the comment on... Um, of of the comments that have been happening. Um, As I say, I apologize for just doing a lot of monologuing uh, in today's session, but I felt like there was a, a bunch of, it's kind of a session zero kind of situation, right, where I wanted to establish some sort of ground rules and explain what I think are some of the really big issues going on here that we have to be aware of in order for us even to start having a conversation. If we just tried to jump into, you know, Let's talk about young Goadriel or let's talk about, you know, dwarf women or, or, or whatever in, in, the, in the trailer, I mean, um, we'd still be talking at cross purposes. Right. I, I, I felt it was really important. So I, I thank you for having the patience to bear with me. Uh, and I apologize for not getting to everybody's questions uh, here. Um, but um, but anyway, we'll 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 do more in the future um there are a few different things that we're going to do uh we're kind of maggie and i are kind of feeling our way through this hopefully maggie will be back next time um and uh there, there's as I, as I mentioned before there are several things that we want to do we want to talk with guests sometimes there are some other talking people that we would really love to hear from uh and to have some conversations about you know their thoughts and views and stuff you don't have to listen to us all the time um also we um we're not necessarily going to do that every session but you know we'll do that occasionally. Um, there are going to be times when we're going to want to be really kind of rolling up our sleeves and sitting down with some of the materials that have been or are being released. There's still more we can talk about about the trailer, for instance, especially the overall shape of the trailer. I feel like people have been responding to bits and pieces so much, I, I, almost, I hear almost nobody talking about, like, the story of the trailer, which is to me the most fascinating thing in, in the whole thing. Um, and what I liked best about it, actually, what I was most interested in by it, at least, I, I can say. Um, but anyhow... So we'll, we'll, we'll do some of that. Um, I would love to address some of the specific concerns and things. So a lot of the issues that people have, a lot of the the, the things people are angry about or the things people are worried about. Um, uh, specific, we're going to talk about Elves of Color. We'll totally talk about Elves of Color. Um, and again, I, I'm hoping that... No, not hoping. I am planning um, that we will, be, we will have a conversation about Elves of Color in which nobody's going to yell at anybody and just call people names in any direction right that's my plan to talk about elves of color um so these are all the things where i'm i'm i am not going to shy away from any of those uh topics and so i definitely encourage folks uh to sort of suggest things we're going to try to proceed um since there's a lot of people with a lot of different interests i'm going to try not to just kind of pop around and be extremely chaotic we'll probably have like distinct issues and themes that we're going to talk about um but what i do want to say is if we're not getting to your questions, to your issues to your questions um be patient we'll get to it we have a lot of time weekly discussions from now on um and uh uh and when we do um uh, as, as i say this session was a little bit atypical in the sense of um uh, it was a little bit atypical uh, in that I'm monologuing a lot more than I normally like to do. Uh, normally, I'll be interacting um, with um, folks in the in the in the chat a lot more. Um, but I wanted to wanted to lay that groundwork, and now we can we can get into details a little bit more. So, thank you. Oh, uh, and I of course should start by telling you I can't be here next week. So um, I, I said um, it's going to be every week except for when I travel. It's one of the reasons why, even though. I only thought of the idea of doing this show at all on Saturday. I started it right away this week, a couple of days later, because um, I didn't want to wait two weeks. Um, so I wanted to go ahead and have our first session here today, and then we'll continue this discussion in a fortnight, because I'm going to be gone. I'm going to be traveling with my family next week, um, but I'll be back on, uh, what is it, March 9th, I guess it is. Um, and we should have our first guest on March 9th. That'll be a lot of fun. Uh, and then we will talk about... Um, uh, we're going to be talking about Gilgad. That's why he was on my mind here tonight. We're going to be talking about Gilgalad and Gilgad's parentage uh, and its implications for you know sort of thinking about some of these um, second age lore questions uh, as we as we move forward. So. Thank you very much uh, for joining me, and I hope to see you guys around next week, and uh, of course there are other broadcasts and stuff that I'm doing. We'll be talking about uh, the awesome Nature of Middle-Earth book tonight. We're uh, we're coming to the end of part two in our discussion through the Nature of Middle-Earth, so I hope you'll join us for that. This book is amazing, uh, and I love it, so I hope that you will um, uh, will join us for that. Thanks, everybody, uh, and uh, I will see you guys around. Bye now.